If you want to get everything your dog's got, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. To help unleash your dog's maximum potential, check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance Lineup at yukonubasportingdog.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Canine Roll Call Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Ferguson, here with your co-host, Amber. Hello. (laughs) Amber's a big talker. So we're pretty excited about today's um, episode. We've got a a pretty interesting guest on today. So um, I'd like to go ahead and take take a second to introduce um, Tracy Trace Sargent uh, from Georgia. Well, thank you, Jason and Amber. It's great to be a, a part of your show, and I look forward to spending a little time with you and sharing some information with your audience today. Perfect. Again, thank, thanks for taking the time. So if, if you can, if you'd go ahead and get us started by giving us some, some background, how you got started, how, how things progressed. Sure. And when people ask me that question, it's not a simple answer. And uh, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version, so to speak. And it seems like a million years ago when I started this, and I want to emphasize to the audience, when I began this journey, I literally didn't know what end of the dog bark. <laughs> and I know that sounds pretty extreme, but I had no training background experience. My parents weren't trainers. I didn't grow up around trainers or anything like that. So with that being said, what happened is I was going to school full time working full-time, and my life was just literally a blur. And I knew when I finished school, I wanted to do something different and something different with a dog. I did grow up with some family pets and very loved companion-type animals, but nothing working, so to speak. So I knew when I wanted to get a dog, I wanted to do something with it. I just didn't know what that something was. Well, I did some research and discovered that the German Shepherd breed really fit me as far as their personalities and temperaments, intelligence, and and all of the amazing abilities that that the particular breed has. Not to say that other breeds aren't, and I've worked other breeds, but that just really, I was really gravitated toward that particular breed when I started looking into things. So I found a breeder, and he had a litter of puppies, and I honestly, it was this simple. I sat on the ground, the first puppy that came to me, I grabbed it and took it home. No uh, testing, no evaluation. It was just really kind of love at first sight, and I just got very, very lucky that that puppy happened to turn out to be a nice working dog. So... Prior to when when I got him, I realized that, wow, this cute little fuzzy eight-pound puppy is going to grow up to be a big, strong dog. So I need to figure out how to train it to be not only a good working dog, but also a good companion. And that's when I took some obedience classes and then a friend of mine took me about agility uh, type competition. And I did that a little bit, just really more for fun. Not, in, not at a competition level. And I thought, you know what, that's really fun, and I met some great people, but it's just not exactly what I'm looking for. So as fate would have it and stepped in, I, uh, no pun intended, I was reading a Reader's Digest article. 
And this story, and I still have it today after all these years, and that was a woman that had a German shepherd that found a missing three-year-old boy. And this huge light bulb came on, and I was like, wow, if she can do it, why can't I? So that's really what started and planted the seed of my journey for the last, gosh, 28 years of dogs being trained to find missing people. And it had the combination of that incredible three loves of my life, and that is being outdoors, working with dogs, and helping people. So it was just the perfect match for me. So with that, I was living in Alabama at the time, and I think what really helped me so much in this whole journey, which has just been an incredible experience, and I know it sounds kind of strange, but not only did I know, not know what end of the dog barked, I literally was young, stupid, dumb, naive, clueless about everything, about working dogs, about bad people, about crime, public safety, just the whole concept and world that I was literally, I don't know, for some reason was calling to me. I just didn't know exactly how. So I made some phone calls and just through various, you know, rumors and talks and discussions, this name kept popping up. And again, I was living in Alabama and it was the name of a local deputy sheriff that quote unquote was a living legend. And that they said, hey, if you want to know what it's all about, about training dogs to find missing people, he's the go-to guy. So, again, being young, stupid, naive, and clueless, I called him up (laughs) and said, hey, you know, I would love your input, you know, just evaluate my dog and see what you think and whatever, whatever. I really don't know why he met me, but he did. And I remember even vividly like it was yesterday. And during this, and this is your audience will appreciate this, having talked to all these people, and again, I was not law enforcement. Um, I'm a petite, blonde, little person, so to speak, even though I'm a tomboy. I had this image of Joe, which was this deputy sheriff, of being 10 feet tall and bulletproof and you know, all of, you know, very intimidating and all of that. And I remember, I guess there was my dog at that time. His name was Zach, and he was about a year and a half old. And this SUV pulled in and blacked out window so it couldn't see. And this gentleman walked out, and I knew it was him because we were like in an industrial park area that was closed, so there was no other reason for anybody else to show up. And he stepped out, and I looked at him, and I thought, well, doggone it, he's not much bigger than I am. I think I could probably take him with one arm. <laughs> no, I'm wrong on that. Oh, my goodness. So, um, it you know, the old saying goes, it's not the size of the dog that matters. It's the size of the fight in the dog that matters. Well, he was the epitome of that. And he walked out and, you know, he just says, all right, I'm going to go here and lay a track, and then I want you and your dog to try to find me and, so Joe runs off, and I literally had this conversation with Zach. No training whatsoever on tracking. Had basic obedience, and I just looked at him. I said, Zach, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just going to hold on to the leash, and you're just going to have to figure it out. I don't know what to do. So sure enough, he did what uh, this natural, incredible ability that these dogs have, and lo and behold, tracked Joe and found him. 
And of course, I was just excited beyond belief. And uh, Joe, I think, recognized something in me. And he, he admitted later on just the passion, a true calling, the sincerity, how genuine I was. All of those things, and he even admitted and understand Joe was one of those individuals that sugarcoated nothing. He was very brutal, very brutally honest, very um, um, almost mean in, in some regard. And he admitted later on down the road, um, and, and I'll get into some other stories about what happened through our trainings, but, but he said, he called me kid because he was much older than I was. And he said, I tell you what, kid, he said, I have trained a lot of people over the years and I've been hard on a lot of people over the years, but I've never been harder on anybody than I have on you. And I never realized it at the time, but he, he really was a blessing. It was good for me, for him to be as tough and as hard as he was on me because it prepared me not only for the dark world, but also this dark world I was about to enter into as far as public safety, law enforcement, uh, serial killers, homicide, suicide, just all of those things that I was unfamiliar with. But I, it was such a passion and a calling. Everything that he said and did never stopped me. It, it, it never wavered in my passion and desire to do this. So... He said, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I have a bloodhound, which does tracking, and I have a patrol dog, which is a German Shepherd named Max, that I'm always looking for people to lay tracks for me. And I want to emphasize to the audience not to say that training dogs for other things is not difficult and time-consuming. All of it's hard. All of it's time-consuming. But just in my experience, the most time-consuming thing you can do with a dog and training and maintaining and, and uh, the physical exertion and everything involved is tracking. There's no shortcuts to it. It's hard. Every step that the dog takes, you have to take 10 steps. Every place the dog goes through, briars and everything, you have to go through. It's a very complicated um problem-solving uh, situation for the dog and for you. It can be very, very dangerous at times. And I'll mention a story later on about my first quote track I did here in Georgia. And uh, so just to let the audience know, the dogs trained for tracking. Um, it's very, very time-intensive, very physically challenging, very mentally challenging. So with that, Joe's like, hey, I've got this willing healthy, um, able body <laughs> that will get lost with my dog. So he said, you lay tracks for my dog, and I'll show you how to do that, and I'll also show you how to train your dog for this stuff. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a dream come true. So that really started our relationship of him mentoring me and um, putting me through, through the ring, so to speak, uh, for, for many years. And... <laughs> my my first experience with his dog is we met a few weeks later after our initial meeting, and he said, I'm going to have you lay a track with um, uh, the bloodhound. I don't remember the bloodhound's name. So I go running off in the woods, and this is at night because after work and whatever, 
that's when we can meet and with his job and everything. So uh, I lay a track. It's in the middle of the night, and I'm sitting in the woods. And I want to paint a picture for the audience here. I'm sitting there, and I know the direction that I came from, so I'm facing that. And I'm sitting down on the ground kind of in an Indian style with my legs crossed. The scene of King Kong, as it, he walks through the woods, and the trees are parting, and the branches are breaking, and you hear all of that. You can't see it. You can't see King Kong, but you know something big is there, and something's coming right at you. That was my scene. <laughs> there were lights in the background that um, kind of glowed of the trees. So I could see that a little bit, you know, like uh, the street lights and stuff. So I could see enough for these trees and bushes to move. And that, that's the vision that absolutely looked exactly like the King Kong scene. So here comes this enormous bloodhound. Very, very friendly. But what Joe did not tell me, and I did not know because this was my first experience, again, young, dumb, stupid, and naive, I'm going to highlight that many times in this conversation, that's one of those moments. He comes barreling through at me, and he's like, oh, my gosh, here you are, fun, fun, fun. Joe did not tell me, nor anybody else, how absolutely slobbery these dogs are. (laughs) I was soaking wet with slobber. And nobody tells you how smelly these dogs are, too. God love them. Thank God they have a cute, cute, wrinkly face because that's, that, you know, how they smell and, and uh, you know, is not an attractive, appealing trait in a bloodhound, at least not to me. But anyway, maybe to others. So here I am, they're covered in slobber and smell and all of that. And, of course, Joe walks the dog, and everything's fine. So I, I walk back to my car, and I get in, and it's like an hour drive to home. No kidding, guys. I had to roll down my window because I couldn't sell the, stand the smell of me. It was that. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. I love these dogs that have it. You know, they really have a smell about them. So, um, so that was my first experience with Joe's Bloodhound. Well. That was um, not a bad experience compared to my experience with his patrol dog. So, audience, especially these up-and-coming dog trainers and uh, wannabe dog handlers and all of that, if a police officer tells you, quote-unquote, whatever you do, don't run and don't make a sound when my dog finds you, there's a reason for that. And, of course, what happens, young, dumb, stupid me says, oh, okay, I'll go lay a track for your patrol dog. No problem. So here we go. I don't know. It was a few weeks later or whatever. I lay a track for Max. And he's a solid black German shepherd. Very experienced. Very intelligent. Highly trained. Just one of those uh, once-in-a-lifetime kind of dogs uh, that, that Joe had. So... I lay a track, and at this point, uh, I want to try to, quote, impress Jeff. So I lay this track, da, 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 and I crawl underneath this kind of Christmas tree thing. And I'm lying on my stomach, and it's cold, so I'm wearing a jacket. And uh, you can't see me at all because I'm underneath this kind of Christmas tree type of, you know, tree. So it's dark. 
and I hear the sounds in the background. And I hear Max getting closer and closer because you can start hearing him panting a little bit. And then I hear him sniffing. And at that point, I know he's like right on me. So he crawls underneath the Christmas tree. And at this point, he's on my back. And I'm thinking to myself, "Uh uh-oh, this is the part that every part of your body, you want to scream, you want to run, you want to do everything that, Joe says not to do, just from instinct. So I didn't panic. I thought, all right, Joe's going to be here. He's going to pull him off. No problem. So this dog was so smart. He's like, well, I can't bite you because you're not running. But I can bite you if you move. So what does he do? He starts pouncing on my back with his front legs, which knocks the breath out of me. That's how big and strong this dog was. And I couldn't help it, so I breathed in, and then I breathed out because he kind of felt my breath. Well, to him, that was enough of a movement. So what does he do? He bites down on my shoulder, and I have four puncture wounds in my shoulder. I'm not crying. I'm not screaming. I'm not running. And I turn around just like, all right, I can't. I, he's sinking into my shoulder. So instinct then says, all right, now it's a fight in my life here. I turn around, I'm on my back now, and I'm facing this dog face-to-face. And I got him by his neck, trying to keep him away from my face. And at that point, thank God, Joe sees the lead underneath the tree and pulls him off. And he says, Max, no. And he pulls him out. Well, what had happened, the track was down a railroad track, which Joe asked me to do. Well, because it was night, Joe actually fell down on the railroad track and lost the tracking lead. And Max already was in my scent pool and took off. And by the time all of that happened, which wasn't that long, Max was already on top of me. So with that, yeah, if anybody's wondering... Absolutely, it hurt like hell. (laughs) I'm not going to sugarcoat that. It hurt very, very badly. And I could feel the blood going down my back. And uh, I just looked at Joe and I said, Joe, i got to get up early tomorrow morning to work. See you later. Well, the real reason was I did not want him to see me cry because it hurt so bad. I got in my car and I cried all the way home. It, It really, really hurt bad. So if anybody's been bit, especially by a working dog, it's very painful. So I get home, I nurse myself, all of that. Well, fast forward three years later, he, um, again, talking about the story I mentioned earlier, he looked at me and he said, I was harder on you than anybody else. And you have to understand, Joe, that he was one of those people, you didn't earn his respect. You didn't, uh, didn't care. He didn't care what you did. He wasn't intimidated by anybody. He just one of was those unique people. And he said something I'll never forget. And I, I, it, it was the best compliment anybody's ever given me. He said, "Listen, I know you're not law enforcement, and I've been working with you. And I think this was about three years we had been working together. And." Um, he said, I tell you what, kid, he said, I would put you up against anybody, man or woman, and if I wanted anybody to watch my back, it would be you. And ever since then, I was like, wow. 
So then through that process, opened my world to law enforcement and whatnot. I was hanging out with Joe as a law enforcement officer and the other officers, and my father was a firefighter paramedic, so I kind of had a little bit of an idea that that firefighting paramedic is a little is a whole different world than law enforcement. So hanging out with the guys and then going on some searches, I realized, oh my gosh, what do I do if I actually find somebody and and they're hurt? I don't know how to take care of them. I don't know what to do. So that's when I became an EMT. And then I noticed, okay, they have some radios and da da da. And there was some concepts about not only the law enforcement radios and public safety radios, but ham radios. So I thought, well, that sounds unique. And I took my ham radio license, became an operator for that. And then hanging out with additional law enforcement and public safety people, such as firefighting and EMT. Um, EMS and and emergency management and I was like oh my gosh y'all get paid to have this much fun are you kidding me this is incredible so that's when I was involved in all that that's when I became a firefighter emergency program manager and then you know other things with public safety and the concept of all of that and really the keystone to emphasize to you Jason and Amber and the and the listeners no matter what I had done over the years, and most recently, which I'll mention in just briefly, the dog was always the keystone. It didn't matter my personal life, professional life. None of that changed. No matter how much that changed, what didn't change was the dog. And the keystone uh, was the dog and continues to be that. So I'm just very, very privileged and honored to to realize really at an early age what my passion and purpose is and has always been in my adult life uh, with the dogs and, again, helping people and being outdoors. So that's how I got into it. It was, it was kind of by accident and, and I think a lot of faith and a lot of hard work and, and not to sound a cliche, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears over the years. So, and still having fun and um, been a part of a lot of things, seen a lot of things. And with that, I'm still amazed by the magic of dogs. I truly am as much as I've seen them work, as much as I've seen other people's dogs work and a lot of different things. I'm still incredibly in awe of their capabilities and they are truly the, the real heroes and um, make all this magic happen. And I'm just lucky to be a part of the ride and their journey. Yeah, it's quite an indoctrination <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. One of the things you mentioned um, sort of toward the end of that, that, that <clears throat> brings me to a point that, that I hope you can take just a bit to expand on is we get, you know, approached oftentimes by people who, are looking to get into um, similar work um, that you're describing, whether it be they want to become a, a cadaver dog handler or they want to become a handler of some sort of search and rescue dog. And there's this misconception that all they need to learn is the dog and how to read the dog uh, without having uh, someone to, to guide them or the aforethought that, again, as you said, when you find the person – now what are you going to do? 
You know, that's a great question, Jason. And, and I do get uh, calls uh, when people, like you say, hey, I want to I wanna be a dog handler. I want to get into this or that. The first thing I tell them, oddly enough, is I tell them, don't get a dog. And they're like, wait a minute. Well, how can I be a dog handler without a dog? And it's for the exact reason that you mentioned. I tell them that you yourself as a dog handler has such a huge learning curve in learning all the things you should learn and need to learn if you choose and are willing and, and wanting to pursue this type of endeavor. And let me expand on that. When you look at, again, the different competitions, Schutzen, uh, agility, show dogs, nose work, barn hunt, all of those, quote, competitive type sports, which are amazing and take a lot of work and dedication and um, really a lot of fun for people of all backgrounds. I think, you know, I encourage people, you know, to do things with your dog, no matter what level of skills that you have or the dog has. However, I do emphasize and want to emphasize with your audience. If somebody decides to get into a working dog profession, and I want to lean very heavily on that word as a profession, it doesn't matter if you're, quote, a volunteer. I don't like using the word volunteer. It doesn't matter with these families or with the bad guys or with dead people whether you get paid or not. You should pursue this 1,000% whether you get paid for it or whether you make no money or, or, or do this uh, without compensation. It should not be a volunteer endeavor. It should be a passionate profession. And um, that's something I feel very strongly about, that if I'm approached with an individual or a group that either wants me to do a workshop or, or a seminar or give them input on how to get into this or whatever, I do everything. I I try to be very, very honest in a professional way about what you are about to partake on. This is not something that should be, quote, a dog club. It should not be a social club. It should not be for sensationalism. It should not be a thousand different things. It should be very pure and very honorable and very respectful. And I think a great example is when I do seminars or training and whatnot, and, and I, one thing I forgot to mention, I also pursued um, a national um, search and rescue program uh, to train in, in compass work and things like that. I also developed a search and rescue program that was a, that is an award-winning training program that is solely on, quote, searchers, and it's for everybody. Whether you have a dog or don't, you should go through this. Another thing I went through was for man tracking because that actually helped 
increase my success rate uh, in, in a big way when I went to the man tracking class. So all of this training, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg of, of things that I've pursued over the years, and all of it is to make me a better dog handler, but also make me a better and successful responder. Whether, um, you know, I'm looking for a life person, a child, Alzheimer's, a bad guy, or trying to figure out a homicide situation, suicide, natural disaster, whatever it may be. Well, all of that, when I talk to people, I tell them, please don't get a dog right now. What I recommend to folks is that if you want, again, to pursue a working dog endeavor and profession, you should hang out with those people. Find out what it is exactly about because it's very expensive. It's very time-consuming. You have to make a lot of sacrifices. You have to be completely dedicated to it to do it right. I tell folks to hang out with the folks that do this, to find out what you're, quote, getting yourself into. Plus, again, the, the learning curve and so many other things. If you map and compass, uh, man tracking. Um, the dog is a major part of it. It's the driving force, but it's, it's really the combination of learning how to do these things, learning what to look for, not only to help the people that need the help, but also to make sure that you don't turn into one of those that needs the help. Um, meaning your map and compass, you should be in very good physical condition, uh, no matter what your age is. So there's so much more to it than just, quote, having fun with the dog. I also tell folks that um, that's a great time to learn what kind of dog is the right fit for you? I've had some great dogs that were amazing that we just didn't click. And I gave them away. I gave them to other people, and they work great for that person. When you talk about a dog and a handler, it's not about just spending time and learning things and doing things. It's a relationship. It's a bond. Especially, I remember when, when folks would ask me, well, Tracy, doesn't it scare you when you go in the middle of the woods looking for a cop killer or a rapist or a murderer? And I said, no. With my dog there, he tells me what I need to know. Now, certainly I'm well aware and the adrenaline is high and that rush and all of that. And I, I don't do stupid things. But with that dog, he's my eyes and ears. And that bond and that relationship is so vital and so important and it could save your life and it could save your dog's life. So with that, folks need to spend time with these dogs, figure out what's the best fit for them, what kind of not only the breed itself, but the, the temperament and personality. It is a marriage. It is a bond. And the worst thing that could happen is that, for example, this gal, I did a seminar, she had an amazing, probably one of the most natural air-spinning dogs I have ever seen in my life. And it was her first dog, and I was like, wow, ma'am, you have no idea how lucky you are for your first dog to be this good. And I could tell she was frustrated. And I said, well, 
you know, tell me what's going on here. And she said, but I want it to track. And I said, well, then, ma'am, you need to get another dog. I said, this dog will never track. I said, it's just his natural ability to want to do air scent. And I, you just don't know how lucky you are and what a privilege it is to have such an amazing dog that you have. So all of that said, to your audience, I um, salute anybody that does want to do this and certainly want to be supportive. But with that, there is a harsh reality um, with all of this. And uh, I say this with the utmost respect. I absolutely salute and commend anybody that wants to pursue this. I have great admiration for so many people that that do this kind of work, but the honest truth that there are a lot of, uh, quote, dog teams out there that individuals not only should have no business owning a dog just as a personal dog, but absolutely have no business having a working dog. Their, Their motives are wrong. Their, their attitudes are wrong. Their intentions are wrong. Everything about it is just wrong. And with that, I have seen circumstances with great dogs um, can only support and hold up a bad handler for so long. Meaning, if there's a bad handler with a great dog, it's a bad thing. But if you have a great handler with an okay dog, they're going to be a really, really good team. And if you have a great handler with a great dog, they are going to be an outstanding team. Yeah, picking picking handlers is, is tough. Um, we oftentimes don't get the opportunity to choose who the handler is when we're, we're training dogs. Um, but also, you know, choosing the right dog, going back to – to something you said just uh, just a moment ago is, you know, we've had to have that conversation with a lot of people, uh, you know, and just pose the question, uh, you know, do you want an air-sitting dog or do you want this dog to be an air-sitting dog? Because those two may not be the same thing, uh, you know, or mm-hmm. whether it be cadaver or whatever. We get a lot of folks who bring us dogs. They've already selected with little to no real uh, good information about how uh, to select or what to select. So that, uh, that's, that's super important as well, in our opinion. Absolutely. It is a teamwork while at the same time, I get the question often, well, how do you make your dogs do this? Well, I don't, it is a drive. It is an instinct. And, uh, you know, I kiddingly say, listen, I'm the chauffeur, I'm the cleanup crew, I'm the hairdresser, I'm, I'm the chef, I'm all of these things. And again, these dogs are the true magic that makes it happen. And with that, every dog shouldn't do this kind of work. They don't want to do this kind of work. These kind of dogs, they live for this. It's a drive, it's an instinct, and I can't take credit for these dogs. I just channel what their natural drives and instincts are to benefit us, uh, whether it's for a live person or a dead person. So just channeling that drive, seeing what really clicks with this dog, and also allowing them to be the absolute best that they can be. And what I mean by that is that when my dogs are at home, they absolutely 
are just regular dogs. The only thing that I ask of them is that if I ask them to come to me, they need to come to me at all times, no matter who we are. And that's a safety issue. That's a life safety issue. Other than that, I let them play hard and they work hard. So I'm a big proponent of not only one, and, and I've told people this, and I, I don't mean to hurt their feelings, but like you say, they'll they'll bring a dog and I'll evaluate it, and you know they get the dog out, and the dog's 20 pounds overweight. And I'll just tell them up front, and I said, listen, right up front, this dog is overweight. It's out of shape. So I'm a huge proponent in that. The one thing that overrides all my decisions is this, and this is something that I ask when I do training in seminars. Hey guys, when my phone rings and I know it's a search for a missing person, what do you think goes through my mind? And some folks will say, "Which dog are you going to take? Your equipment? You're this? You're that?" And I said, "Okay, that's fine." I said, "But no, guys, that this is the point I'm trying to make to you." And if this is not how you perceive this, and if this is not what goes through your mind in doing this in the beginning, you've been doing this for a week, or you've been doing it for 25, 30 years, and that is, okay, somebody's life, a family's life, an individual's life, has changed forever. I can't undo that. But what I can do is help them through this. And that means a huge responsibility that myself and my dog will be in the absolute best physical condition that we can be in, that we have done absolutely the best possible training that we can possibly do to prepare for this event and give our very best 100% of the time to these families and officials. Because somebody's life has changed forever. So if you don't see it that way, then you should not do this. It's not to say that you're not a good person or anything. It's just that's the commitment and that's the level of commitment that should be done because these families deserve the best of you and your dog. And that means making sure that the dog is in excellent condition throughout the entire year. And I tell folks, I'll ask them, do you feed your dogs the same amount of food year-round? Well, yeah, of course. I said, absolutely not. My dogs almost get half the food in the summertime than they do in the wintertime because they should be, these should be Olympic athletes. They should be in top-notch condition because especially when you're talking about search and rescue and cadaver work and all of that, not to say that um, law enforcement dogs um, they're in great shape too, but when you look at the difference, oftentimes law enforcement, their, their missions are, are oftentimes more short, short time periods. Where search and rescue and, and cadaver work, we may be out there for hours, for days, going for miles and all kinds of terrain and all kinds of situations. So that dog has to be in top notch condition. And that also means I don't, uh, let my dogs live inside. They are not in air conditioning. The only time they're in con- air conditioning is when we're traveling in the vehicle from point A to point B. They stay outside 24 hours a day 
365 days out of the year because they have to stay acclimated to the weather, to the environment they're going to be working in. We walk every day, um, either just for, you know, just for fun or whatever. Uh, so they're active every day and that they are given the right amount of food to make sure that they're never overweight. Even in the summertime, I like to get my dogs at least a little bit underweight because of the heat and um, dangerous conditions we have here in the South. And good grief. And now it's everywhere. You know, I've heard of, you know, 100-degree weather up north. So um, all of that said, Jason, um, it's so much more an absolutely the handler is uh, somebody that needs to be an exceptional person to do this kind of work. Um, and, and again, if somebody wants to do something with that and they, they can't make that kind of commitment, there are some great programs out there that you can compete with your dog, but it doesn't mean somebody's life. For example, if I'm, well, I'll tell you about my first, very first search I ever did in Georgia, and that was, uh, I just moved to Georgia from Alabama, and I moved here for a job working with Homeland Security, and somebody heard, quote-unquote, a girl with a dog. I didn't know anybody. Good grief. I didn't know where the grocery store was when I moved to Georgia, so uh, they called me up out of the blue, and they said, hey, we've got this guy. We've been looking for him for two or three hours, and we wonder if you can come search for him. I said, sure. So we get out there, again, searching for him two or three hours. The two officers that went in with me, they were the same two officers that had been searching for this guy in the woods as well as others. So the woods were heavily contaminated, and long story short, um, we go into the woods, and the dog, her name was Brooke at the time, she gets close to him. And she and I had worked before, so I knew her change of behavior. I knew what she was going to do when we got into, quote, the scent pool. So when we did, I stopped her. And I whispered to the guys, get ready. And that's exactly what I said to them. So they, they took their guns out of their holster. I had the flashlight, which just as the audience, um, I, I beg the officers that go with me, please, please, whatever you do, don't backlight us. It'll take a minute, but your night vision will, will come into play and just follow us, but please don't backlight us and please turn down your radios. Because guess what? The dogs and me are the target because we're in the front of the line. So we want to surprise the bad guys. We don't want to announce that we're coming. So they went in, and they were on either side of me. So the dog was in front. I released the pressure off the lead. She went right in. I had the flashlight in my right hand. I shined the light. I said, there he is. I pulled out. The two guys came in in a, a formation with their guns drawn, and the guy was right there underneath the bush. He was wearing dark clothes. He was dark skin, like a um, Hispanic-type uh, skin and black hair, and he was in a fetal position with his hands underneath him. Well, at that point, there was the perimeter, and they heard the other guy screaming and yelling, so they came running. At that point, they had literally him surrounded. So, you know, I thought, you know what? The dog and I done our part, and now it's time for them to play. 
So we back out. And apparently what had happened, and I'm listening to this when I get back to my car, and I'm hearing the yelling and screaming in the woods, and then it gets very quiet, and I hear some yelling, and I hear a gunshot. And you could have heard a pin drop. And I was like, I was waiting to hear the other shot. And it didn't happen. So apparently the guy was cold up in a fetal position, unbeknownst to the officer, anybody, he had a three fifty seven underneath his his uh, rib cage. So he had pulled that out, so that's when they were screaming and yelling, and he put it to his head. And at the last minute, he turned it up into the air. The only reason they didn't shoot him is because he was surrounded in a circle, and the guys were afraid of crossfire and hitting each other in friendly fire. So those two officers came up to me again. I didn't know them, and they thanked me. They shook my hand, and they said, Tracy, we don't know why he didn't shoot and kill us. We literally walked by him at least a dozen times, and uh, you saved our lives, and um, we, we want you to help us with some other things. I said, absolutely. We found him in 16 minutes. So that's a great example of I put my life and the officer's life in that dog pan. And it was because of all the things I've talked about earlier. Brooke was in great shape. I was in great shape. She was trained. I was trained. We had a bond. We had a relationship. We had a trust. And it worked. And it worked the way it was supposed to. And that's the thing I think people have the misconception of is that they see these five or ten second um scenes on the news of the dog handler coming out and, and yeah it's sexy it's it's exciting it's like how cool is that with the officer coming out and his full gear with his cool looking you know dog and it's like man that's really awesome I want to do that but guess what that's five or you know five or ten seconds you don't see the months or years of training and relationships that you have to go through to get to that point. It really is like an Olympic athlete that we see these athletes perform in just, you know, a few minutes. We don't see the four years or longer that they've prepared for that moment. Yeah, if it was if it was easy, everybody would do it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and the good the good ones do make it look easy, don't they, Jason? Yeah, that's a, that's another part of it. Yeah, uh, people who've done it for a long time, people who are really good at it and have a lot of experience, make it look easy enough so that bystanders and others who really don't know what's involved can uh, can take a look at it and think, "Man, that's easy enough. I I'm pretty sure I can do that." So, absolutely, yeah. As they say, it's fun until somebody gets hurt. Well, guys, in this world, in that kind of world that you want to work in, getting hurt is not an option. And that means the dog hurt or killed, you hurt or killed, um, the bad guy getting away and hurting and killing somebody else, um, a, a, a missing child or Alzheimer's that you, you didn't find uh, because you weren't prepared, they die. So it's a lot of responsibility, and that's what I'm trying to emphasize to your listeners. Again, not to, um, you know, discourage people to do this, but um, give them a reality check, so to speak. And I go back, what did I say earlier? Young, dumb, stupid, naive me. That really helped me. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I, I found that passion, and it should be a passion. 
and uh, prepared myself and trained and continued training um, to, to do whatever I can to help, again, these families and these individuals and officials. And, and I think this is a good segue of over the years, what I also recognize, and I think it's certainly relevant to your audience, that no matter how good you are, and this is something that I really had to learn the hard way and nobody told me about, but I want to share it with, with your audience, that the harsh reality about this kind of work is that sometimes your best isn't good enough. And that's when I mentioned earlier, these families and officials serve the very best that you can give them. I absolutely believe that 1,000%. But the harsh reality is that sometimes your best isn't, isn't even good enough sometimes. And that's a hard, hard reality. And that reality hit me really, really hard years ago when I was looking for a missing American in uh, Ecuador. And um, his mother was there. And I tried so hard. The dog tried so hard. I mean, we, we just physically, mental, everything we could do, that everything I could imagine doing, I wanted so hard. And I will tell you guys, if you haven't felt this way, you will. If you do this kind of work, you absolutely want to will it to happen. You want to do everything you can to make that person appear or find that person. And you just feel it so deep in your bones that it hurts. And that's how this situation affected me. And we were down in Ecuador, and I'll never forget it. We didn't find him. We've been there now and there about a week or so. And uh, we had to get back on the plane, and the mother did too. And, um, I just looked at her and I, I felt such like a, you know, such a failure. And I apologized and kept apologizing to her. And I said, I'm so sorry I didn't find your son. I tried so hard. I wanted so badly to find him for you. And I just couldn't. And she showed me this incredible courage and grace. And that was, she hugged me. I mean, she was a mom. She hugged me. And here this mother is that she lost her son. We, we know he's probably dead. But she, she was here comforting me. And I'll never forget that moment. And it just really hit me so hard that it changed my perspective, really. And, and that is, okay, all I can do is the best that I can do. And... As long as I do my best, I can go home with my head held high and with a good conscience, so to speak, that I can lay down at night in my bed and sleep okay. But I also tell the families and officials that, and it's still tough today, um, when we come out of the woods and, and it's interesting just to kind of paint a picture to your audience of the responsibility that you have. So here you are, this family's been missing their loved one for days. It could be a missing person. It could be a homicide situation. We don't know. But regardless, 
this family is missing their loved one and they're desperate. They are just so desperate. They're emotionally fragile. They are so vulnerable. Um, nobody can, can, can prepare anybody or any family for these kind of situations. No matter how many times you've seen in the movies or on TV or whatever, until you're in those shoes, you don't know how you're going to react. And when you drive up and they know you're the dog handler, it's like, wow, the Calvary is here. Our salvation, the answer to our prayers is finally here. And we're going to find our loved ones in this nightmare and this, this horrible, horrible place of a black hole that we've been forced to live in for days. We're finally going to have some resolution and answers. And it's going to be over. That's a huge amount of responsibility when you drive up. And I've seen that book on, on these family faces many times. And what's even worse is you've searched for hours or days and you walk out of the woods and you just see that, that glimmer of hope that they had that just eats away at them. They just almost crumble when you walk out of the woods and I'm sorry, I, I don't know where your loved one is. I know where they're not, but I don't know where they are. So how do you handle that? Um, it's a huge responsibility, so just the reality of that. But what I tell folks is the first thing is that when I show up, I, what these families need most, at least in that moment, is some soft, compassionate empathy. They don't need a hard driving, you know, you know, tough, tough person, man or woman. I immediately, the first thing I do is that I, I don't even say my name. First thing I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're going through this. And I'm going to do everything I can to help you through it. That alone, just spending that 10 seconds just saying that is enough to just kind of let them breathe a little bit. We go out and search. We come back. We don't find them. And, of course, they go through that normal emotional reaction. And I tell them, we haven't found your loved one. And I know today's search is going to be stopped today. But this doesn't mean we stop searching. I don't care how long it takes, whether it takes another day, another week, another year, whatever it takes to find the answers that you guys deserve, we're going to do that for you. So that puts me in a better place. That puts them in a better place. And that's how I've handled situations like that over the years after my moment on that plane with that mother. So I want to share that with your listeners, and I think that's an important part of when we go back, Jason, I know this is a dog program, and everybody's wanting to know, hey, you know, what it takes to train a dog. What do I do? How do I do? And all of that about a dog, dog, dog. But again, guys, when you get into this kind of work, the dog is a big, very important part of it, but it is just a part of it. It's so much more than that. Yeah, that's a super tough position to be in. Um, and I've 
I've said to people for years, you know, not everybody's cut out to be a cadaver dog handler, you know, and a lot of times uh, in situations sort of like the ones you're describing, you know, when you show up, you're often there and you're going to come back with an answer that that family's not going to be happy with. Either you found something or you didn't find something. And in that position, a lot of times they don't want to hear either one of those answers. So it it really is tough. It is. You're absolutely right, Jason. And, you know, this one actually came up not too long ago. Um, The the question came up is, um, well, Tracy, you know, how do you work with these families and what do you do and things like that? And, And why do you do it? And I tell them, well, first of all, and, and it really, what they were getting to, and I, I finally, you know, asked them, I said, well, what, what do you want to know? <laughs> they said, well, does it bother you finding dead people? And I said, oh, okay, all right. Um, well, the answer to that, and I, I get kind of surprised answers uh, or surprised books when I give them this answer, and that is, no, it doesn't bother me finding dead and the reason is this. One, however that person got there, whether somebody killed them, suicide, natural disasters, natural causes, whatever it might be, there's pain and suffering is over. So to me, that, that is, is helpful for me in, in one aspect of an emotional part of, of doing this kind of work. But secondly, the family. The not knowing is the absolute worst a family can go through. And I've worked with some families for years, and we still don't know where their loved ones are. And the not knowing is the absolute worst state of living and being that any family can be in. So when you mention, you know, they're not happy with the answers, you're right. So if we go to a scene and we find the person and we come out of the woods or whatever we come out of and we advise them, you know, I'm, I'm, we found your loved one, but I'm, I'm sorry, they, they passed away. And of course the natural grieving and the response is, uh, they, they do what they do. What I've seen is that females oftentimes get very emotional, uh, very vocal and the men's often men oftentimes get very physical and and I recognize that. So when I tell the man, I give them a little bit more distance because they want to punch walls. They want to throw things. They want to, you know, get very physical. So I let them do that. I know that what I've told them is a good thing. I will never say that to a family, but I know in my heart and doing this kind of work, giving them that kind of news is good news. Because I have worked with families when we come out of the woods and we've had to tell them, I'm, I, I'm sorry, we haven't found your loved one. And you can tell that it's mixed emotions. They're like, well, that means they're probably okay then. And we always want to lean that somebody's still alive and well than we do that they're dead. Well, we know as investigators, law enforcement, whatever, that we know for a fact that this person is deceased, whatever information we've got in the investigation. The family 
it's just, it's such a dilemma and contradiction and a fight of emotion. And again, my heart goes out to them. Uh, and they are my inspiration uh, to do this kind of work. So it's not even a win-win situation. It's not a, it, it's just, it is what it is. So for any handlers out there that um, the reality is no matter whether you find them dead or whether you don't find them dead, it, it's, it's a precarious, very sensitive um, situation that you really need to know how to, to handle with these families um, because they are very, very fragile. Um, in so many ways. Now, it's certainly great when we have those few moments uh, and few occasions where we do find them alive. I'll never forget um, um, one case in particular, well, two of them. One of them was an Alzheimer. She'd been missing for four days, and another one was a three-year-old boy. We found both of those alive. And um, just the emotional roller coaster of um, these families go through. Uh, it's, it's unlike anything like the movies. It's unlike anything you will see about and hear about. And until you've been there, um, you, you can't describe it to somebody. You just have to live it. So, yes, there, there are those great moments when those happen. Um, but the reality is they're few and far between. It's tough. It's a lot tougher than... Uh... Than, than some people can uh, really even imagine. So we're going to take a quick break here, um, hear a word from our sponsors. Got some good things coming up after the break, so stay with us. If you want to get the most of your dog and your training sessions, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. Yukonuba's new premium performance lineup is built with the nutrients dogs need to help unleash their maximum potential. That starts with providing energy that matches their efforts, supporting optimal nutrient delivery, and supporting post-exercise recovery. Check out the new Yukonuba premium performance lineup and find your dog's fuel at yukonubasportingdog.com. Highlands Canine Training offers affordable and proven dog training solutions to resolve even the most difficult of dog problems. Founded in 2006, Highland Canine Training also offers quality working dogs to meet the increasingly demanding requirements of today's military and law enforcement agencies. In addition, they offer first-class canine education programs at their school for dog trainers. So far, they've hosted students from over 30 different countries. The School for Dog Trainers offers affordable financing and accepts GI Bill and VA benefits. The Service Dog Training Division at Highland Canine Training develops and trains some of the best service dogs in the industry and offers worldwide delivery. Their commitment to customer service and support continues to set them apart from the competition and makes them a leader in the industry. Visit HighlandCanine.com or call 866-200-2207 to learn more and see the difference. We're back. Thanks for staying with us. Again, still here with uh, Trey Sargent talking uh, all things working in search and rescue dogs. So 
was hoping in maybe the second portion you could take a, a little bit to talk about some of the some of the training you do, some of the seminars you've done, maybe some 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 of the things you've, interesting things you've seen along the way. Okay, sure, Jason. Um, so let's dive into the workshops and seminars. Um, first and foremost, um, I'm a big proponent uh, and advocate for not one size fits all. And that means not only for the seminars and workshops, but also for the individual dogs and dog teams. So when I do these trainings, uh, the first thing I want to do is be invisible. And I'll tell folks this. I just want to see where you guys are. I just want to see the true nature of you know, working together, where you are. Uh, just do what you normally do from... When I say normal, I say like from the vehicle. You get the dog out of the vehicle, you do this, you do that, you set them on the track, you search them, you set them for a search area. Just all of the steps that you take and normally take in your training or even a, a search, you know, real search, whatever. Just, I'm invisible. So I'll do that with every single dog team. And then I will back up and say, okay, what do you guys want to achieve? And these, these, this is what I see in my observation. So when I talk about getting out of the vehicle, I don't know if people are aware of this, but there are certain ways and certain things you should do at the vehicle in getting your dog ready and getting yourself ready. And there's different steps and different ways to do it. And uh, I'm also an advocate that, good grief, guys, as you said, Jason, if this was easy, everybody do it. So I do everything I can to lean into putting the odds in our favor to be successful search or outcome. And in order to do that, there are certain things you should do as far as how your vehicle set up, the equipment. Um, getting your dog ready, getting yourself ready, how you get the dog out, what equipment you put on the dog, what equipment you don't put on the dog. So there's a lot of ins and outs, and we go through every bit of that. And then um, how to start a dog. And one thing I've learned, it's kind of the equivalent of EMS, the golden hour. They say that whatever a medical personnel, whatever happens to a, a hurt person in that first hour, is a big um, predictor of what happens to them long-term. That's kind of, I would say, similar to dog training and, and setting your dog up on searches. How you present the scenario to the dog, how you start the track, how you start the search area, does, I, I really believe and have seen it, um, influence on how successful you will be because if you start it off wrong, it can not to say that you can't undo it and get back on quote the right track, but if you learn how to do it successful in the beginning and um, how to present these situations to a dog, you're going to be a much more successful dog team. So all of that we go through. And then in certain situations, we may just even evaluate the dog. The dog has no training, has nothing. The handler has no training. And I'm like, okay. So 
so we'll evaluate the dog for different, um, you know, their drive, their temperament. And the first thing I do, even with dogs that I'm trying to find for myself, the very first thing I do with all dogs is absolutely nothing. And they're like, well, how do you test the dog? I said, well, I want to see what the dog's true nature is, their true personality without, quote, any influences from me. Does it feel good about themselves? Is it confident uh, in themselves, in the world? Are they curious? Are they outgoing? Are they shy? Are they reserved? Are they anxious? Are they nervous? Are they all these different things? Because the, quote, um, wellness of what that dog is, how well you can mold it into a fantastic working dog. And the analogy is that I like to describe as you can slow down a Ferrari, but you can't speed up a Volkswagen kind of thing with all due respect. I think Volkswagens are fun little cars, but they're not a Ferrari. You can slow a Ferrari down. So I want to see what that dog's natural drives and instincts are as well as their temperament and personality. If you have a dog that has great drive, but if you go boo and it tucks its tail and runs the other way, that dog is useless. So the dog really had to have strong nerves, strong courage, uh, a high degree of natural confidence. And you can build that confidence, but they have to have it um, in order for you to mold that. Then we get into some specifics as far as their drive and depending upon what the dog is, if you have the plate. And, and just to let the audience know, um, there are different drives for different jobs. So if we have a tracking dog, think of the analogy of a wolf. A wolf has a drive to run down its prey, a deer, an elk, whatever it might be. So a, quote, tracking dog, we are are going into that dog's prey drive to hunt down that deer or that elk. And instead of that deer and elk, they're hunting down a human. Instead of getting to that deer or elk and wanting to kill it and eat it, they want to play and have that positive reinforcement. But it's all instinct. It's all drive. You don't make the dog do it. You just channel them to, to quote, hunt that prey, that animal, that, that human. And we often call it, and I'll ask folks, who wants to be the rabbit? Well, the rabbit is the person that goes and lays the track for the dog or the person that goes out to a the open area to, to an area search dog, whatever it might be. And that's the concept of, hey, the dog's going to hunt down this rabbit. Then you have um, the human remains detection dog. That's more of a um, hunt drive. And the analogy is uh, like the bird dogs. That's a great description of when you have these bird dogs, they're looking for a bird. It's not moving. It's on the ground. So they're not, quote, tracking them. They're, they're picking up scent, and once they get into that scent cone, then they go directly to where that, that scent is coming from, the source. And then, of course, bird dogs, they'll point or flush it or whatever. So it's a similar concept with HRD dogs, uh, and I say HRD. Most folks know them as cadaver dogs. So when you think of cadaver, it's a full-size body, and that's the name and description that you often hear in the media and news. But technically, they are HRD dogs. That's human remains detection dogs. They search 
and locate and are trained on the full spectrum of human remains, whether it's bones, dry bones, to a full-size body, to body parts, to skin, to cadaver fluids, and everything in between. So that's the technical name that uh, they're described, and I'll reference that as HRD. So in your HRD dog, I don't know if your listeners know this, but what's really unique about them is when you describe drug dogs and bomb dogs in HRD, they're all, quote, detection dogs. They detect scents. That's what they're trained to do. But the big difference is that HRD, that particular scent of human remains, there are some dogs that have a natural aversion to it. It doesn't happen often, and I've seen it in about three or four dogs in 20-something years. But it's very, very obvious, and there's and you can't train it out of them. They're terrified of the scent. And that's the first thing I do with a dog with HRD, is that I will get a container with a pretty strong-smelling source. Um, uh, actually, placenta is a great uh, item uh, for that type of thing not only for training, but for uh, pre- presenting to a possible HRD dog candidate. If they want to go into the container, and all this is sealed, they can't get to it. Um, you know, I do believe in the safety protocols and make sure all of this is very safe for the dog. Um, so just smelling that, that's what we're wanting them to do to see what that response is. If they want to investigate it and check it out or they're just not sure about it, that's all okay. But if a dog smells it and they are terrified of it, it's, it doesn't matter the drive or what great personality or temperament the dog has, it's immediately washed out. And I've, again, seen it in a few times. So that's the first thing we do. The second thing is looking to see what that dog's hunt drive is. And one of the easiest ways is... Um, of course, uh, the the very common thing of fetch. Well, that's only a part of it. And this is just from my personal and professional experience and, and that kind of concept of playing fetch with the dog. It's great they play fetch, but if the dog doesn't want to engage in that game with you, he's probably not a, a, the best candidate. What I'm looking for a dog is all of those things I mentioned earlier as far as the confidence, outgoing, all of that. It doesn't have an aversion to it. It's curious about it. It's interested in all of that. But then playing fetch, I want it to go fetch, you know, play fetch with me, but I want it to bring the dog, bring the ball back. Drop the ball and say, hey, I want to continue playing with you. And it doesn't matter if I'm a stranger or not. They want to stay engaged in that game. If you have a dog with all of those factors and wants to stay engaged in this game with you, it's going to probably be a great candidate for HRD work. Um, with that, with, if I can interrupt, I just want to. Sure. So it sounds like you see a lot of those. Uh, we've seen quite of those, quite a few of those over the years, and just want to take a minute to talk about that owner. Um, who has a dog, you, you mentioned the one that you present odor to and they're scared to death of it. Um, mm-hmm. let's, I'm going to be shocked if, if you haven't had this happen because I've had it happen so many times. Um, how do you handle that owner who says, well, I can take them home and work with them and I can get them past that? Or the dog that lacks the requisite drives and the owner says, well, I can keep working on it and I can fix it. 
Okay. Um, yes, Jason, I have experienced that as well. Um, and again, not to uh, weigh in on people's parade. And I, I think to back up just a little bit, when I do these training seminars, whatever it is, and, and I'm asked to do them, and I'm like, um, I do some vetting because not all people should do this kind of work. Um, because of the nature of the, doing this kind of work. It's uh, all the things that we described earlier. And that is, I will tell them, yes, I would be, you know, if they say, okay, um, they've been vetted, they're, they're an appropriate team or group that should, you know, uh, get this kind of training, I will tell them up front, I would love to ha- help you with this. Um, spend the weekend with you guys, but just know that I'm going to be honest. And I also emphasize that, guys, I want you to be successful. I want you to do great at this. I absolutely want you to succeed in every way, to help achieve every single dream and goal and objective you have with this. And that is it's the only way to do that is for me to be honest and truthful for you uh, to, to meet your goals and dreams and to be successful at this. So I had this one particular group, and they, again, had such great passion and energy and enthusiasm to do this, which was infectious. But they had, I think it was like 10 dogs. I don't, this is so many years ago. Let's just go with 10. I washed out eight of those dogs. And they were like, oh, my gosh. And I said, guys, they would say, well, I want to do this. I said, I want you to do that, too. I want you to be successful. But you can't, you can't meet your dreams, and you will not be successful with this dog. That so does not surprise said, me at all. It really does yeah. that you washed out eight yeah. out of 10. I've, I've been in a very similar situation before and have had to be the person, uh, as, as difficult as it can be sometimes to tell people, Hey, this is just not going to work. It's not going to be successful mm-hmm. the way it is. And, uh, you don't make a lot of fast friends that way, but you know, you, you got to do what's right for the people who are going to eventually count on those teams. Absolutely. And I think one of the best ways uh, that, that I've seen, you know, a positive response out of this is that I'll ask them, "Where, what do you want to achieve? How do you envision yourself in doing this kind of work in a year, in five years? Just, just tell me what you hope to achieve over the next five years in this work. So they'll go on. It's like, I want to do this. I want to do that. I said, I want that for you, too. And guess what? Let's do this, and let's do it together, but let's find you the right dog to do it. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you're right. You're right. And out of that group, every single one of them came back. I came back, I don't know, six months later or whatever, and they got new dogs, and um, they were – because I explained to them – this is what you're wanting. This is what you should look for. This would be whatever, whatever. And they called me back. Same group of people. And I was so proud of them. And what was awesome, and I want to emphasize to your audience about this, and they, and I told them this. I bragged on them 
so much. I said, I wish every group was like you guys. Y'all are absolutely the epitome of what a group should be like in doing this kind of work. Y'all had a taste of reality, or taste of reality, so to speak. But y'all didn't give up. Y'all were so committed to this. And by that next weekend, the second weekend that I met with them after they got new dogs, they literally were on cloud nine because they then realized, oh, my gosh, this is fun. And that's what I told them, you know, when we were going with their dogs and the dog, you could tell, was not having fun, was not interested. Guys, I want y'all to have fun doing this. It's hard work. It's exhausting mentally and physically. But guess what? It can be the most fun thing in the world you can do with a dog, but you got to have the right dog that wants to do it with you. So when they got these new dogs, they were like, oh, my gosh, we get it, Tracy. You're right. This is fun. It should be easy. It should be natural. It should be something that you, you shouldn't have to, you know, like, oh, my God, this is the most frustrating, depressing thing in the world because, you know, it's deflating. But I think it also a little bit of competition. Uh, and it wasn't really approached that way. But, you know, we're all... As humans, uh, as, as living beings, we have that natural competitiveness about us. And when they saw those other two teams do so well and they looked like, oh, my God, that looks amazing and we've never done anything like this, it was almost, hey, I want to be a part of that club. I want to be as good as them. I want to. I want a dog like that, too. That looks like fun. So it kind of helped a little bit that we had at least Two really, really good dogs there. Now, the handlers had no idea what they were doing, and that was okay. Um, but when the other folks were like, oh, wow, that, that's what that's supposed to be like. And now they're, they're still doing this kind of work, and I am so proud of them in every way. But it took them realizing, okay, all right, yes. Uh, we need to step back and reevaluate that. And that goes back to what I mentioned earlier in the previous session when people call me up and say, hey, I want to be a dog handler. What do I do? How did it happen? Like, don't get a dog. Because that's what happens. People either have a dog or get a dog too soon. And that's what I mean, guys. If you want to be a dog handler and you want to do it right, don't get a dog. Spend time with folks. See what kind of dog you like and and temperament and qualities it has, the breed, all of that, but also what to test for, what to look for, because wouldn't it be much better to have the right dog the first time than it would to have the wrong dog and then having to take 10 steps back in order to get back to the the starting line? So that's what I want to say to your audience. Spend time with folks that are doing this kind of work so that that way you can do it right the first time. Yeah, that's a great, great, great point. Absolutely. Yep. So so talk a minute about some, maybe some of the pitfalls and successes, both. I think both are important to talk about when you've been working with different groups, I'm assuming all over the U.S., maybe even outside of. 
Yeah, um, I used to do a lot more seminars and workshops um, years ago, but just because of my schedule and other things, I haven't done that many uh, in, in the past few years. And I'm looking at probably starting to do a lot more again um, and success and failures. So one of the things that has um, helped me over the years, and Joe and I were working, and I mentioned him earlier, he, he he didn't sugarcoat anything. And I was doing something, and he, he brought it to my attention. And I argued. I was like, no, I wasn't. Well, I didn't know it, but he recorded me. And, um, you know, we set up a scenario. He showed it. He said, see, you were doing it. I was like, oh, my gosh. So that was a great lesson learned. And I tell folks, record yourself. Uh, you can really learn about yourself, about your dog, um, just so many things that you can learn. So recording, and of course nowadays we have so much easier capabilities in recording things than we did years ago. Um, one of the questions I get too is when I mentioned earlier about looking for the guy in the, in the woods with the gun and the dog getting into the scent pool and stopping her and knowing beforehand before we get there, uh, people are like, how do you know? And even the officers that I did a lot of fugitive searches with, uh, they would say, you know, Tracy, how do you know? So I set up a scenario. We had a, a trustee go off into the woods. And I said, well, I'll start the dog on the track, but then I'm going to give you the lead. And it was completely dark. And I said, just follow the dog. And I set it up where he wouldn't run into any briars or bushes or whatever. It's just a pretty easy thing. So the dog started tracking, and then all of a sudden, the dog, what I call it, goes into overdrive. And that's when the dog gets in scent pool. And I asked the guy, he was a big fisherman. I said, think of it like you're a fisherman. You're feeling that line. You're feeling that fish kind of teasing that hook or whatever, and then it takes it. Well, that's the same concept when these dogs are tracking and get into the scent pool. They go into like super overdrive. And I said, tell me when you feel that. And he's like, oh, my God, I feel it. And I said, that's how I know, guys, to keep us from getting killed when I tell you guys, hey, we're close. I'm like, that is the coolest thing. Well, I actually presented that to a seminar one day. And uh, this young officer, he had a really nice dog. And, and uh, I was telling him about that. And he's like, man, I, I, I wish I could experience something like that. And I said, okay, we're going to set it up for you. So he starts the track. And I said, now trust me on this. You're gonna, you're gonna work the dog, um, let the dog do its thing. But when I tell you to close your eyes, just trust me that I'm not gonna let this dog take you into something that's gonna hurt you. But I just want you to close your eyes. So we did the track, and I knew we were about a hundred yards or so from from the bad guy or the rabbit, I should say. So. He closed his eyes, and this was during the daylight. I said, close your eyes and just feel the leash, feel the line. So he did, and then you could feel it where the, his arm kind of moved forward a little bit. And he's like, oh, my God, the dog went into to overdrive. He said, I feel it now. So that's a great little fun lesson uh, that you can try with folks, uh, especially with the tracking dogs and trying to teach them how to feel the line. Also, with tracking dogs, you really need to know, quote, how to dance with the dog in the woods. It's not a matter of taking this 
15, 20, 30 foot leash and taking a hold of it and holding it the entire time. As the dog is going, it's going to go quicker than you. You can't, there's situations you can't go into because the dog's much lower, but there's a scenario, a situation where you can go around the tree or the briar bush and then you can drop the lead and then catch it on the other side. And it's a really, really cool, smooth dance. And if you see a good tracking canine handler, if he does that, he's been doing it a while and he makes it look easy. So I encourage tracking dog handlers to learn how to do that early on. Another thing is with all of these dogs, uh, tracking, cadaver, air scent, and whatnot, the first thing not the first thing, but the first phase, I should say. The first phase of training these dogs, the dots should be very, very close together, meaning you should know exactly where the track is. You should know exactly where the gravity is. You should know exactly where the source is. Because several things. One, the idea is training is to train these dogs not only to train them and what you're wanting them to find, whether it's a human or a cadaver, but also to increase the dog's confidence so they get to the point where they absolutely will not give up. You have to stop them because they absolutely will keep searching and keep hunting and keep tracking until they find that person because you have built such a high degree of confidence that they're going to find that person no matter what. And in the beginning, you set up what I call success. Not only success for the dog, but for yourself. And what I mean by that, as you know where the track is, or whatever the rabbit source, you should, as the handler and a good handler, should learn the dog's uh, body language the change of behavior, meaning if you're a tracking uh, handler, you should know when the dog's on the track 100% of the time and when they're off the track 100% of the time because no matter how great a dog is, physically they will never, ever be able to stay on the track every single step of the way. The wind, the terrain, the disturbances, whatever it might be. And it's okay, uh, and it's it happens all the time. The dog might get off the track a little bit, like, oh, oh, wait a minute, it's not there, and then they'll turn back and get back on the track. All of that. Well, that is your opportunity and really your responsibility to be able to read your dog 100%, 100% of the time. So then um, – when you first start training the dog, all of those are successes. And one of the things I see in people that, um, um, I don't want to say make the mistake, because a lot of times they just don't know. And that is training these dogs into boredom, meaning there's that fine line in challenging the dogs, but not defeating the dogs and deflating their confidence, but also you don't want to train them into boredom. And I see a lot of that. Similar scenarios, same scenario, same amount of distance, same whatever. And the dogs get bored. And 
Well, that uh, sort of leads so, me to the next question I was going to ask you. Do you, you know, based on what you see, do you feel like teams are effectively creating training sessions that are going to consistently lead to success in operational environments? The short answer is no. But the long answer is one of the questions I ask in my seminars when, when let's say, dogs that, uh, when I talk about not one size fits all. So, and I tell this up front to everybody, guys, please don't compare yourself to another dog team. And the worst thing you can do is that, oh, wait a minute. That situation worked for her dog or his dog. I'm going to try that with my dog. And it could be a disaster. So don't do what happens or what, what is being done with other dogs or other dog teams. They are truly individuals. Dogs have different drives, different, different um, uh, desires, and, and things that really kind of press their buttons that really make them excited about this. So you have to look and see what does my dog get really excited about. So I also ask, but another thing I say to folks in seminars is that train wrecks are okay, guys. It's all right to have a complete train wreck here. In fact, I encourage it. I rather have a train wreck here in the seminar and, and training session than I would out there. Because oftentimes you can learn more in a train wreck of like, oh my gosh, I completely screwed this up. Guess what? It's okay, guys, because we can get you back on the track. But I'm going to teach you and show you how to get that dog and yourself back on the track. So with that, I also also ask them, again, dogs that have some training and whatnot, I'll turn to the handler and say, okay, What's your goal and objective for this training scenario? And that, that's what I tell folks. Every single time you get your dog out to do a training session with them, you should have a specific goal in mind. Well, I want my dog to be able to do multiple surface tracks uh, with whatever, multiple turns. Or I want my dog to work an old track that's at least eight hours or, you know, or longer. Uh, I wanted to be able to do multiple turns. So you need to set that up. And what I tell folks, you can't set up all three things at once, meaning time, dip, distance, and difficulty. If you set up, and the only way you would set that up is, a, is an advanced, experienced dog, meaning... If you want a 12-hour old track that you want to work, it's probably <clears throat> not a good idea to set that track 10 miles long, <laughs> you know? Um, or if you want uh, a dog with multiple turns, it's probably not a good idea to set up it to be a complete urban track. So that's what I mean by you want to challenge these dogs, but you also want to have a goal in, in a mind, and you want to set it up for success. And what I've seen in folks, for example, I'll ask them, all right, how long have you and your dog been working? Oh, we've been working 
together a year and it's going great and, and he's doing awesome and I feel great about it. It's like, okay. So I'm really excited for him too. And I was like, okay, well, how long are your traps now? Oh, they're about 200 yards long. And I'll look at them. I said, so y'all been working about a year now and it's about 200 yards long. I thought, yeah, but we're doing great. And I was like, Okay, in a year, that dog should be doing mile-long tracks with multiple turns, multiple surfaces, creek crossings, urban tracks, all of that. And they're like, oh, my gosh. So what I tell folks, every time you get the dog out to train, you need to ask a little bit more of it in every training. So, for example, if you've done, let's say, a 100-yard track, the next track should be 130 yards, 150 yards. The next time you had one turn, well, the next track you should have three turns. Um, so that's what I mean by you need to challenge the dog every single time. And if I talk about distance, and I'm, I'm, I'm let me back up, not distance, but where a dog should be in your training timeline, it should not take long for you guys to be doing multiple turns, multiple ground surfaces, and multiple times in a track in just a few months. That's how, if these dogs, if you pick the right dog and you do it right, these dogs want to be challenged. And the same thing with cadaver work, uh, HRD work, um, exact same situation. Challenge these dogs. But what the big difference is this, every single dog, the most important part of their training is the foundation training. If you rush through the foundation training, it's going to come back and haunt you when I search. At the same time, if you do the foundation training right, it will be your savior and your saving grace in difficult um, cases. Yeah, One they, case in between. Go ahead. Pro, pro athletes do some pretty remarkable things, uh, but uh, every day they work on fundamentals and basics, not those uh, <laughs> crazy sensational Absolutely. things that we see on TV sometimes. Absolutely, yes. And it's the same thing with training your dog, meaning putting those thoughts together. You can't go from A to K. Because that's going to happen in a real search. You, it'll fall apart. You have to go A, B, C, D, E, and F. At the same time, it should not take long at all. It shouldn't. It should take days, maybe weeks, maybe a month. Um, so but you have to have a plan to get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it should be when I'm starting off with any dog, um, I start off short easy, high success, high fun, high energy scenarios every day. And what I mean by that is HRD is easier to do just because I don't need a rabbit to go run and hide. Uh, I'll get a HRD dog uh, candidate and I may work with them two or three times a day. And we're talking like five minute scenarios just to build up that confidence, high fun, high energy, 100% success rate for the dog at all times. And then do that for just a few days, and then guess what? By the end of the week, they're actually searching woods, you know, large areas by themselves. 
because of doing that foundation training. It's not the most fun thing in the world, but once you do it, it makes all the difference. And the same thing with area search dogs and tracking dogs, too. Get your foundation training down and get it down right. It will make all the difference in the world. And I go back to uh, a case I did on HRD. And it's a scenario that I present to um, handlers. I'll actually have the map of the real place of where this search happened. And I'll set the scenario for them. And I'll, I'll present it to your listeners now. This was a real case that happened here in Georgia. as a high-profile case. A female's torso was found in the garbage can of this apartment complex. She had no head and no limbs, just her torso area, and she did have clothes on. Law enforcement initially didn't know who this was, didn't know if it was somebody that lived there or whatever. They called me. They said, all right, Tracy, we have this, and we believe it belongs, uh, this torso is from a female that lives in this apartment, in this apartment complex. But there's nothing in the apartment that says that she was cut up here because it's clean. But we need your dog to come not only to find our body parts, but to see, you know, what happened in this this apartment complex area. So we get down there. We go upstairs. And just to kind of paint a picture, this apartment complex is two stories. You had the apartment downstairs and apartment upstairs. Her body, her torso was in the garbage can Next to, if you're looking at the building to the left side, and on the left side was an abandoned apartment downstairs, and her apartment was upstairs. So we go upstairs, the one bedroom, They the dogs go into her bedroom. They didn't do anything. They check living room area, whatnot. They get to the bathroom, and they literally jump into her bathroom, uh, bathroom tub which was a shower-bath combo, and they alert. So then um, we searched around the other apartment areas, and we searched the next-door neighbor's apartment. And the dogs went into his bedroom and alerted at some shoes, and then went to his bathroom and alerted to his bathroom, and then went to the living room, nothing, whatnot. And then we continued searching. They didn't, and when we say search, we searched every single door of that apartment complex. We get to this other door toward the back, and the dog goes absolutely nuts. And the apartment manager was with us. And we asked him, what is this? They said, it's a laundry room. So we open it up, and it's a small laundry room, stackable washer and dryer, so it's a small area. The dog literally is climbing the walls. And I tell the officers, I said, this room is completely saturated with human remains stents. My recommendation is that this room needs to be searched every square inch because we're not going to be able to pinpoint anything in this room. It's completely saturated. So then we continue searching down the alleyway, other places, so on and so forth. Well, when we looked at it visually as humans, nothing appeared out of the ordinary. Understand this was a very, very politically and intense, emotionally charged environment 
because she was a law student, a beautiful young woman, just graduated from law school, and she was about to move to Boston to where her family lived. So now we have a university student that is obviously dead. Somebody has done these horrible things to her. They live right across the street from the university. Um, the news is out now. There's mass media. There's hundreds of vehicles out there. There were some very, very um, powerful and politically influenced individuals there. I'll just put it that way. And they're asking me all these questions, this and that, and uh, so on and so forth. So I just tell them, guys, the dogs are telling me there's human remains sent coming from her bathroom, from her next-door neighbor's bathroom. I can't tell you just because of the piping, do we have residual scent that's coming and overflowing into his apartment? I don't know that, but, um, you know, that's what the dogs are telling me, and then absolutely in the laundry room. Everywhere else in that apartment complex and surrounding areas, there's absolutely no scent. That's a lot of pressure when you have 100 people sitting there trying to, you know, this and that. And there were some very strong personalities and, and discussions going in this very heated room. And I'm having to explain to them, no, I can't tell you who killed this person. I can't identify that. All I can tell you, the dogs are telling me there's human remains sent here, here, and here. Well, fast forward two years later and talk about intent. The guy finally confessed, and the reason why he confessed and, and made a written full statement um, in writing to take the death penalty off the table. The investigator actually sent me his confession. And I tell you what, even though I've done this for a while, it was a huge relief to me because there was a lot of pressure. And I'm like, gosh, I hope the dogs were right. I mean, I, 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 I truly believe they are, but I don't see anything. Gosh, there should be blood everywhere. I didn't see anything at all. Well, the dogs were 100% right. He actually got into her apartment. She woke up. He was wearing a mask. She recognized who it was, called him by name, asked him why he was doing this. He did not rape her, but he strangled her and um, strangled her to death in this uh, fight that they were having in her bedroom. And he wasn't a really, really big guy. She wasn't a big girl, but she was bigger than, than what he could carry. So... His solution to that problem was to drag her into her bathroom, put her into the tub, close the shower door, and proceed to cut her up. He then took her body parts, put it in a uh, bicycle or in uh, trash bags, put those parts in his bicycle, and, and rode down the road and dumped them into a dumpster. He then took the torso put it into a garbage can outside, which was right there at the apartment complex. Then he took his bloody gloves and T-shirt, flushed it down his commode, hence why the dogs were alerting to his bathroom, and then the dogs alerting to his shoes, they found blood, just one small speck of blood on his shoes. Then in the laundry room, 
when they checked inside there, there was a broom closet where the hot water heater was with the brooms and mops and things like that. Behind the hot water heater was the hand saw that he had used to cut her up still with her flesh and blood. Wow. The dogs were 100% right. That was one of the most technically difficult cases I ever worked. And my point of all that is how I worked that was through my foundation training, through the fundamentals, and as complicated as it was, it was the foundation training that worked. Yeah, you can't shortcut those basics. No, you can't. And the scary part about all of that, Jason, is that it was, in fact, not only her next-door neighbor, but it was also her classmate. Mm. They went to school together for four or five years, Mm. and he was obsessed over her. And his the thought that he was not going to see her again because she was within, I think, two or three days of moving away again to Boston with, with her family where her parents and sister and brothers lived. So he had an obsession over her over the years. And um, I would say, based upon the information that we found, and I don't, I don't want to get into the details of it, but I would say with a high degree of confidence that he was a killer killer that just happened to get caught on his first killing. So that's the reality that people are getting into. Um, I mean, that's a pretty extreme uh, example, but you never know what you might run into. Uh, and, And I also remember when I got this phone call, I was actually at the movies with my family watching a movie. So I had to tell them, listen, guys, we got to go. So that's what I talk about, the dedication and commitment and sacrifices in order to do this and do it well, do it right, um, and be successful at it. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. So uh, I would like to back up for just a second um, because I heard you a couple times mention um, age tracks. um, I think you mentioned something like, eight hours or plus, and there's a lot of folks in the industry who say that's impossible, um, especially double blind where the handler has no idea where the person went. So um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I would say, first of all, it is possible. I've done it many times. Uh, secondly, um, I, I want to use a 10-week-old puppy, um, I'm sorry, he was an 11-week-old puppy um, that I had gotten and started training. And and I think this is an important part, too, to to share. If you, uh, two things. If you want to train a dog, whether it's tracking, area search, or or HRD work, you should, as a beginning handler, should do only one specialty. Because, again, you're going to make not a million, but a billion mistakes with your first dog. That's just the nature of doing this kind of work. So you should be very, very good at that, learning your dog, change of behavior, uh, making all of these kind of mistakes that you're going to make in that one specialty. If you choose to have a dual-purpose dog, meaning one that's trained in life and HRD, my recommendation is that you should work the life 
first, especially in tracking. Train the dog in tracking first. Make sure that it is 100% proficient, effective, and successful in that. And only then would you start training it in HRD work. So then getting back to your question as far as age track and this nine, I'm sorry, 11-week-old puppy. I got him. I was going to train him for due purpose. So he passed all this test and everything. Really, really fun little dog. He was a German Shepherd. So I started him on tracking, and he was such a wonderful, fun, natural tracker. I had a friend of mine, and I videoed this. This little puppy, I started him on a harness with just like a little light leash or light lead. I started him on it, and then I dropped the track. And, of course, him being only 11 weeks old, he couldn't go that fast. So I was able to walk behind him while he was dragging his his track. I'm sorry, his tracking lead. So, meaning I did not help this little puppy at all. He did this track. It was a a little over a mile, multiple turns, and two road crossings. I did not help this little puppy at all. And it was age. It wasn't age that much, maybe less than an hour. But my point is, is that foundation training, the right dog, all of that. That particular dog and a dog later on that I got, um, Logan, which was incredible. I did with Logan uh, tracks that were probably, I'm trying to think, probably 20 hours old or more. I'm going to say with the oldest age track that we were, and we found them. Uh, it was a missing person. And of course, a lot of it we did fugitive tracks, which were hot tracks, usually, you know, within minutes maybe 30 minutes, an hour at the most. Um, Logan, also, I trained him in rain, uh, snow, hot weather, cold weather, uh, all types of weather conditions, and this dog was unstoppable. Uh, I remember on a number of occasions, we would track people in the rain, and they often just like, well, I guess we're not going to be able to find the guy. So I said, heck no, if it's you better believe we're going to go tracking in the pouring down the rain, and we find the guy. And they're like, wow. So to answer your question, yes, you can train these dogs to track old tracks. But the difference is is thresholds, and it also applies to HRD dogs too. Um, just curiosity with you, Jason, has anybody – Ask anything about thresholds. Do I need to explain what that means? Yeah, that was actually my next question. Um, <laughs> to be honest okay. with you, um, as far as that goes, you know, we see a lot of people getting into the industry or folks who've been in the industry uh, on the cadaver dog side of things who are limited in the resources they have as far as training aids. And, you know, the expectation is that they go out. Uh, in certain situations and find, you know, entire human bodies. Um, and where, you know, thoughts on that? What advice would you give those people who are limited to to create more success in those situations? 
Okay. So when we, to answer a two-part question there, with thresholds, this both applies to any any detection type of dog, uh, tracking or otherwise, bond dogs um, and, and drug dogs, certainly. So the way to describe this would be baking a cake. When you first mix the batter and you put it in, you smell it some, but you don't smell it a lot. That's low threshold. You put it in the oven, it's cooking about halfway, and then you start to smell it more, and that scent builds up, let's say, the kitchen and maybe part of the, the breakfast nook area. And then that's medium threshold. And then when the cake is fully cooked, well, the whole house smells good. The scent just permeates the whole uh, house itself and in, in almost every room. That's high threshold. So it's important for your audience to know that in order to have a successful dog, when you talk about the fundamentals, you also want to incorporate different thresholds. So for HRD, that is the high sources. I'll explain how you can have those, those high thresholds as well as medium and low. And then when you talk about tracking, the high and medium low thresholds is the age of the track as well as the weather conditions and the environment itself. So your high thresholds are oftentimes your hot tracks. A lot of your law enforcement dogs do that because they're on patrol, they have the dog with them, and the guy is, you know, they're chasing him and then he runs out of the car into the woods. That's a really hot, hot, uh, high threshold type of track. And then let's say you have somebody that's been missing for several hours or so, good weather conditions, wooded environment, that's a medium threshold. And then your low threshold is hours old, maybe the weather isn't great, uh, the environment isn't, you know, great, great, whatever, that's a low threshold. So not only for tracking dogs, for the thresholds, you have to train them for that. So when I talk about you can't increase time, distance, and difficulty. So if you're working a dog a, you know, let's say a four or six hour track, it should be a short track, maybe with one or two turns. So the dog can really increase the sensitivity of its nose and understanding and awareness that, oh, this scent is the same, but it's different. It's kind of different colored apples. It's an apple, but I've been tracking a red apple, and all of a sudden, it's a green apple, but it's still the same. And that's kind of what the dogs are trying to figure out. So you've got to set them up for success with that. It's also important to set them up from when you start a tracking dog, you absolutely want to do every bit of it in the woods initially. And then and only then should you start transitioning to urban. And how you do that is... You, let's say, start in the woods, you go across a small field or an open area, and you go back into the woods. And then as the dog increases its confidence in that different, quote, ground surfaces, you do less and less woods and more and more urban. And then and only then should you work the dog in, quote, an urban environment. So we get back to thresholds with HRD. Um, so, for example... I just worked a case last week. New Kip came in with a 16-year-old girl that's been missing for six, I'm sorry, 51 years. That would be a low threshold. 
I'm also scheduled to go to South Carolina next week to work a battlefield. That's about 200 years old. That's low threshold. So how do you set them that, set them up for that? Well, I set it up with low threshold forces, whether it's uh, one or two teeth where the dogs have to really hunt and locate that small scent. Once you train them for that, it's amazing how well they can pick that up. But if you go from a high threshold immediately to a low threshold, they're like, holy crap, there's nothing here. You can't, you can't spread those dots that far apart. So you have to transition from low, medium, from high to medium to low. Then for the high threshold, uh, what I like to do is I do have some mannequins that I have saved over the years. If you can ever get, I know they're hard to find now, but if you ever come across, any, any of your listeners come across a mannequin, and you can even make a mannequin, my goodness, with, well, heck, now, right now there's all these skeletons hanging all over the stores with Halloween. If you want to use that, anything like that would be, you know, a good visual for the dog. Because not only do dogs respond differently with the scent itself, but visually. It's not uncommon even with experienced dogs um, when they, with let's say HRD, when they're searching and they pick up scent and you're recognizing that in a change of behavior, but then when they come across the body, they're like, holy crap, am I supposed to go up to that? I want to I want to say hello to them, but they smell dead. I don't know what to do with it. I have seen that happen even in experienced dogs. Uh, my dog has found a hit-and-run uh, person uh, last year, and this was his first, quote, full-size body. And he was working the area great, but then when he, he was working the scent, but then when he saw the person, he stopped and he stared and he's like, hmm, I don't know what to do. So I was like, okay, that's perfectly normal. So I walked up to the person. He walked up with me and he's like, okay, yes. And then I immediately gave him his reward and everything was fine. So it's not unusual even for experienced dogs. Because in the real world, there are situations we can't fully train and prepare our dogs 100% for. So we just have to recognize that and help them through it and, quote, consider it a training opportunity. I do this oftentimes with my rookie dogs. So I'll take them with me. They're fully trained. They're operational, whatever. But uh, we, I did this a few years ago when we found this guy. It was really unique. Uh, and it's rare that it happens, but this guy was mummified. And because of the weather conditions, kind of a perfect storm scenario, he was, he died of natural causes and he was in the woods, but he literally was mummified. And, uh, the, the dog that was working it was an experienced dog and found him like, oh yeah, cool. My rookie dog had not seen that before. So I got him out and I told the officers, I said, I'm going to get my rookie dog out if you don't mind, just strictly for, training if you don't mind sure so I had him on lead because I wanted to make sure he didn't want to try to roll in it or or whatever so I had him on lead I had him come up and the dog had no aversion he in fact he was very curious about it almost 
he was kind of like a bull in a china shop. So that's why I wanted to make sure I had him on lead to make sure he didn't disturb anything. So those kind of situations. And with training, what I try to do is then look at visual. Visual makes a difference, but then for senses, for whatever reason, is a very, very smelly thing, at least to me. It's probably worse than a dead body. Uh, it just, just is to me. And it's a very, very strong scent for dogs as well. So um, no, no kidding. Um, it, it kind of got around when I was working for Homeland Security with people in the office and Anytime I heard somebody was pregnant, boy, I got perked up about that. And I, I literally hunted her down and I was like, I know this is going to sound like I'm a crazy person, but if you have no plans for your placenta, you know, I have it. And, uh, you know, they're like, all right, this person is crazy. And of course, the word got out why I was looking for it. And they were like, okay. And now I have people even call me up and say, hey, I heard about you. You want my placenta. So, um, that's certainly a great source for high threshold too. But again, I want to emphasize you can't expect the dog to work a high threshold if you haven't introduced him to maybe a medium size because if you just throw him out there literally in the deep end of the swimming pool, he he doesn't care about working. He cares about survival. He's like, you know, hey, I don't know what to do with this. I got to get out of here. So I want to emphasize to folks again, always, always, always set up your dog for success. Even if he's having a bad day, that's okay. Just go ahead and help him through it. End on a positive note. Every training scenario, no matter what you're doing with the dog, should always end on a positive note and for success with the dog. Yeah, that's a good point. It is... um... My experience is pretty difficult to um well, it's a little overwhelming for a dog of of any experience level to encounter a two hundred pound body in full bloat that's moving because of insect activity. I know it's pretty gross to say, but uh it is a reality unfortunately and and again, not something most people have the resources to prepare dogs for absolutely and I think it goes back to what we've talked about earlier that, again, the dog, being a dog program um, and talking about training, you mentioned about the bloating and the bugs and all of that. Um, um, I found bodies that had been burned up, cut up, dismembered, uh, a head in the woods, um, uh, major decomp, um, terrible smells, the maggots, uh, just just everything that you can think about in every different phase of decomp and doing this kind of work. Um, you know, it's it's not for everybody. So just uh, just understand that with uh, if you decide to go and want to train at HRD and I, I I would say that I'm pretty pretty picky, so to speak, on who I train or work with uh, in HRD work uh, because, um, unfortunately, uh, well, let me back up. There are some great handlers and great folks that are doing this for the right reasons, but there are some folks that are doing it for the wrong reasons. So they're out there, they're active, and, um, you know, that is a concern. Um, And um, 
all I can, uh, not all, but one of the things I say to folks, um, the thing that I think has helped me so much in surviving, <laughs> I think it's a good word, the, the endurance of doing this kind of work for so long, um, mentally, physically, all of that, is that I stay focused on why I do it. And as I mentioned earlier, it's about helping these families, helping the officials, um, doing everything I can to prepare for it, to prepare, prepare the dog. But I also don't get into the politics. I don't get into the drama. I don't get into any of that. Um, I stay out of it. I want no part of it. And um, I just stay focused on what's important. And I think that's really important to share with the audience because there, there was a point in my career um, in doing this kind of work where I was at a crossroads because there was some major drama going on, some major... Um, unfair things, um, not right things, just all the things you can think of that shouldn't have happened were happening and this and that, and it was just very frustrating and exhausting. And, and I just finally said, you know what, Tracy? There's only so much hours in the day and so many hours every day, and there's only so much energy that you have. So you can either... Spend your time and energy that is limited in dealing with this drama, getting involved in it, and just a mess, or you can focus your time and energy in something that's productive and staying focused and using that time and energy that, again, is limited in helping these families and these officials. So that's what I stay focused on. I don't... You know, if somebody says something, and you know, and, and I think it's important, too, like the, the case I mentioned earlier about the university student, the law student that was cut up, um, his family was very, very passionate about defending him, and I get that. At the same time, they were very, very passionate, they being his attorney, about doing everything he could to discredit me and my dog. I didn't get involved in it. I didn't literally, I didn't literally didn't put a dog in that fight. I was a state professional. I stayed with the facts. I gave them the information. And guess what? We didn't even go to trial. So that's another thing I think is important to share with your audience. Do get into this kind of work. When you talk about dealing with families, dealing with death, dealing with missing persons, the emotions, the politics, the drama, all of that, but then you're dealing with the legality. So there are people out there that, you know, are going to say things and do things to try to discredit you and even try to ruin your career or your credibility. And that's something that I did not expect to happen, that over the years, as I became more successful, not because it was given to me, it's because I worked so, so very hard that people that were, quote, my friends, um, that I helped and, um, you know, watched their back and did everything that I would want a good friend to do for me, um, it, 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 there was betrayal there. And I just, it was very hurtful. So just be aware that the longer you do this, when you do become successful, people will resent you for it. 
when you aren't successful, people will discredit for you, discredit you. When you are successful, people will discredit you again. <laughs> you, you know, it's just so much, Jason, so much. Yeah, not, like um, I said, not an easy job. No, no, it's not. Not at all. Not, not at, at all. all. But we do appreciate so, you sharing your time with us. Um, anytime. And um, I'm sure our listeners are going to be able to take something away from it. If people do want to reach out to you about workshop seminars, is there a good way for them to do that right now? Yes. Um, they can. I'll just give them my email, which is fine. Uh, it's Trace, that's T-R-A-C-E, 314 at yahoo.com. Again, that's Trace314 at yahoo.com. And I do want to mention just one last thing. Um, sure. One of the things that I learned over the years, too, is that no matter how good you are, no matter how good the dog is, that um, another way to be successful at this is to know your, your prey. That's how wolves and other predators find their prey. They know their prey. So what I mean by that, it's important, and I want to advocate to all your listeners whoever decides to get into this should learn and take initiatives to learn about lost person behavior, what Alzheimer's do, what children do, what bad guys might do, mm-hmm. what, um, you know, a homicide situation, all of that. So that's another part of it as well. And that's one of the things that encouraged and inspired me to come. I've completed my, my latest endeavor and that was my PhD in psychology with an emphasis in criminal profiling, uh, criminology, uh, predator profiling, victimology, all of that, and learning what these bad guys do with their victims' bodies. Where do they put them? Why do they put them there? So that that is another, quote, tool in my toolbox, and that's one thing that I want to pass along to, to your listeners, too, is that that will be helpful as well is really learning uh, people's behaviors, which that will help you decide where to put your dog, how to work an area in order to be successful. Yeah, yeah, great point. A lot of fairly consistent commonalities in those behaviors, and a lot of research has shown that over the years. So, Absolutely. Yeah, great, great, great point. Again, we appreciate you taking uh, quite, a bit, <laughs> quite a bit of your time. Uh, to share your share your stories, your experience, and your advice with our listeners, uh, and again, maybe we can do a, do a follow up down the road. So, thanks again for your time. You're welcome, Jason, and thank you for inviting me to your podcast. And I wish you and your listeners and Amber too the best, and uh, good luck, and be safe out there. All right, you as well. Uh, thanks again for staying with us. Uh, again, if you liked what you heard, be sure to leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe. Until the next episode, thanks for being with us.